the Apostle Paul prays for the Christians in Ephesus that God might grant them to be strengthened in their inner being with power through the Spirit so that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. And this will be our prayer as well, Almighty God, that being rooted and grounded in love, we may have strength to comprehend with all of your people what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all of the fullness of God. We think so often about salvation and how wonderful it is. We pray for each one of us, whether these themes are very new to us or they've been familiar friends for many, many years, that you would show us something new of yourself this evening, something new of your love for us, and you might encourage us in our walk with you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And you will see it's quite a long handout. I think it was to do. I'm not dipping in and out. That was happening. If I if it's not going to work, I'll off and. Yeah, here we go. Um, if I have to go, we will. Um, I told Kieran what I was going to do this evening. I said we're talking about the glory of salvation, and at this point last week I had a tent and I've prepared. And uh, Kieran said, Paul, it's not meant to be the exhaustion of salvation. So, in an act of great mercy, I have slimmed the handout down, you will see, to eight pages. Erin said to me this evening when I got here, oh, I see, I did not to shrink the handout after all then. And I said, no, that's the, that's the shrunken version. But uh, there is lots of space for you to colour things in and to draw pictures if you want to and to... Actually, there's not much space, but we will, there's plenty of stuff there, I think, for us as well. We're going to start, here's the format. You're going to do a bit of chat on your tables or in pairs initially. Then I'm going to do a bit of chat, then you're going to do a bit more chat. I'm going to do a bit more, and then you'll have a final time in groups, and we will be done by the time that we said done. That's what I'm, is this, this isn't working, is it? Is it? Something's wrong. <laughs> Tell me if it gets so bad um, that we should ditch it. So, you've seen the aim there to know the breadth and length and height and depth of God's saving love in Christ. That's what we were praying just as we came in. And although we think about things a lot, my prayer, as I already prayed, is that we might go just a tiny bit deeper. We're going to think about what Christ achieved on the cross and uh, what he accomplished, and then how that is applied to us. But we're going to start with you um, around tables, maybe in twos or in threes. You're happy to do this. If you don't want to do this, just uh, pass on to the next person. But I've put some verses down there, and I'd love you to have a little look at them. Think using a verse like the one that you've got in front of you, how would you explain to a friend why it is that every human being, apart from the Lord Jesus, needs to be saved. Okay, and then we're going to think about solution, pick a verse, and uh, ask yourself, how would you explain to a friend how the death of Jesus is powerful to save everybody who trusts in Okay, so the problem and the solution, we're going to ditch this. Um,
Don't worry if you haven't finished. It's a really good exercise to do, just to think, okay, which, if I was trying to explain the problem of sin to someone, which Bible verse would I turn to? Maybe you've never thought about that before. You could just go home and write out a couple of sentences uh, so that you're more confident at doing it if ever that conversation comes up. Similarly, why is the cross the solution? If it's really good just to think, to be able for all of us to think, could I say it in a sentence from the Bible? Not just my own words, but something from the Bible that might be able to explain that to people. But it's the common way that we describe salvation, isn't it? The problem and the solution. Uh, and uh, one of the writers on this says, we're the spectators of a wonder, the praise of, and glory of which eternity will not exhaust. As we think about the Lord Jesus on the cross, there is so much going on so broad, so deep, so profound is his love and the effect of all that he's achieving. One thing we maybe don't talk about all that much is this idea of union with Christ. And that's what we're going to think about a little bit together now. So if you ask the Apostle Paul, or if you ask the Bible, what's the Apostle Paul's favorite way of describing who a Christian is? He would say that it is, he describes them as someone who is in Christ. So 73 times in the New Testament, I think it is, uh, the believer is described as the person who is in Christ. I wonder what that means though. If you add in the places where someone is described as being in Jesus or in the Lord or something like that, you get to over a hundred of these instances. It seems to be that this is the way that Paul describes our identity and in particular the way that he describes the salvation that is given to us. And so we're going to think about it a little bit now. It's all because of what or who salvation is. There's a moment in Luke 2, I put the verse on the sheet there, where Simeon, uh, an old guy who's been waiting for the, the, um, the Lord to establish his kingdom, has been told by the Holy Spirit, Luke 2 says, that he's not going to die before he sees the Christ. And this, in the Spirit, we're told, he goes into the temple on the very day when the Lord Jesus, the infant Lord Jesus, is being presented in accordance with the Old Testament law. And Simeon, uh, full of the Holy Spirit, takes him in his arms and blesses God and says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. The only thing he's seen, hasn't seen the Lord Jesus die on the cross, he hasn't seen some uh, summary description, gospel outline, like two ways to live or the Roman road or anything like that. The only thing he's seen is the baby, the baby Jesus. And when he sees him, he can say, my eyes have seen your salvation. This is the way in which God is going to bring salvation to people. This is salvation. So that salvation isn't just a gift that God bestows, but is a person, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what that means is that if anybody else ever is going to be saved, somehow we need to be united to Jesus. We need to be brought into him, for in being brought into him, we too will be in salvation. He is salvation, so we need a connection with him. And that is what union with Christ is all about. He achieves salvation on the cross, but he is salvation, and we are saved in him. So, 
Uh, you'll see some quotes on the sheet just talking about how important this idea is. John Murray, famous theologian, union with Christ is the central doctrine in the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers, there's no joy in this world like union with Christ. The more we feel it, the happier we are. And yet I think we often don't think about it all that much, so that's why we're going to do it now. There's a definition I put on the sheet. The unbreakable eternal connection, or the solidarity some writers describe it as, with Christ that God gives to his people by the Holy Spirit through faith, and by which he confers on us every spiritual blessing. So God joins us to Jesus... And then as a result of that being joined to Jesus, all manner of blessing flows into our life. I want to think about the, join, the joining first, the connection, the solidarity with Christ that is given to us by faith, by God and through the Holy Spirit. And then and to show you a couple of ways that this is described in the Bible. So over on page two, you'll see these three phases. Uh, we're united with Christ in God's eternal plan. We're united with Christ during his time on earth. And we're united with Christ in his heavenly kingdom. So first up at the top, united with Christ in God's eternal plan. And as I put it there, long before the world even existed, God chooses us and gives us grace in a way that hangs on our union, our connection to Christ. Ephesians 1 says, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. It's an incredible thought that there is God before the creation thinking, okay, I'm going to put the sun, this isn't blasphemous, I'm going to put the sun over there, I'm going to put the moon over there, we'll have a few mountains over there, let's make a dolphin, that'll be cool, we'll make some nice flowers and all sorts of things, and you, I am going to save in my son. You personally, as a believer, as one who trusts in Jesus, were in his mind while he was planning the stars and the moons and everything else, the billions upon billions upon billions of stars, every detail of the cosmos, you were in his mind. And he was choosing, making the decision there and then that he was going to connect you to Jesus in such a way that every spiritual blessing would flow into your life. To Timothy says something different because of his own, not God saved us, called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So again, before the world, before time began, God was giving us grace in Jesus. And the point is that he gives it to us in Christ, again, because of him. This is God's sovereign work. It's not something that we achieve as a result of our faith, because all of this is happening way before we were even a twinkle in our mother's eyes. This was way back before the foundation of the world that God was choosing to bless us by uniting us to his son, Jesus. So before time began, during Christ's time on earth, we weren't physically there, were we? We weren't walking around on the dusty streets of Palestine. We weren't there physically as Jesus went to the cross. And yet, Time and time again, as the New Testament's describing what's happening on the cross, it's describing us in connection with Jesus. So in terms of his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and his ascension, you can see those verses are all saying we were united with Jesus in such a way that everything that he did 
during his earthly ministry. He did as a, a representative of those who were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. When he was living a perfect life, when he was saying no to sin every single second of every single day of his life, he was doing it for us. When he was dying on the cross, we were somehow dying with him. Our old self of sin was crucified with him. When he rose, we rose with him. It's the most astonishing thought that as he was there, before we were born, we were included in him. And then we will be united with him in his heavenly kingdom as well. This is just to say that our union with Christ, even for our bodies, doesn't end at death. So um, there's a question and answer there from the Westminster Shorter Catechism asking about what benefits do believers receive from Christ when we die. And you'll see it says, the soul of believers at their death are made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves until the resurrection. So, you know, when you die, we'll think about this a bit more another time, your soul goes straight to be with Jesus in paradise, your body stays in the ground, and then when Jesus comes back, your body's raised and you get a new resurrection body. But the point is, even when the body's in the ground, even when the worms are doing their thing, still you are united with Christ in that. And then as we are raised, so we will share in his life, we believe that we will also live with him. So in Christ shall all be made alive. We will share in his heavenly reign. If we endure, we will also reign with him and we will share in his glory. We're fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So this is, may not be something that you've, you've thought about in these terms before, but it's pretty crucial as we're gonna see. If you have believed in the Lord Jesus, you are in Christ, you are united to him, and therefore to all of the blessings that he enjoys for all eternity as a result of God's work in you by his Holy Spirit that you've received simply by saying thank you and by putting your trust in him. Your union with Christ is an unbreakable eternal connection. That's why you can be so confident uh, of all of the blessings that we're going to think about because they're not dependent on you and what you're doing they're dependent on him and what he did you are in him now a bunch of implications of that and this is back for you on your tables implications for your christian life and implications for our church life as well and one of the ways um, you can read the whole thing in just a sec but one of the ways that um, paul describes the ongoing christian life in colossians 2 6 and 7 just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. Or ESV, I think, probably puts it, continue to walk in him, but I didn't double-check that. So you receive Jesus as Lord, you're united to Christ, and then your whole Christian life from that moment on, you're living in him. It's one of the reasons, just as a side aside, why when Paul was talking to the Corinthians and telling them why they shouldn't go and visit prostitutes, they're so, unite, so closely united to Christ that wherever they're going, they're taking him with them, as it were, because they are in Christ. So of course you don't want to take him there, so why would you go there in the first place is this kind of logic. That's true of the whole of life. And what I'd love you to think about is that question there. How does it change your perspective 
and your approach to the whole of life, not just the I'm coming to church now or I'm coming to a seminar now or I'm uh, meeting up with a Christian friend now, but to the whole of life, to know that in everything and in every way, we're living in him. If you've got time, you can think through one particular area of life just to try and earth it a bit, your family relationships, your work, your leisure, whatever you want it to be. What practical difference will it make to you to think, well, hang on, I'm in Christ. I'm living this part of my life in him. And then church life. We're not just united to him, but because we're, I'm united to him and you're united to him, we are united to each other. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it as we're united to one another in love. And as a result of that, we have a communion in each other's gifts and graces. And, do you know this penultimate line there, we're obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to our mutual good, both in the inward and the, the outward man. So because of our union with Jesus, it's a bit like we say at the Lord's Supper, because we're all eating from the same, the same bread, it's a symbol of the fact that we're, we're one body. Because we're united to him, we're united to one another, and therefore we have obligations to one another to try and help one another's inward and outward person, to love and serve everything about us, practically, spiritually, uh, and in that way. And I guess the question on that one is, what difference does that make? How does it change my attitude to church? How does it change my attitude to loving and serving people? And what do I, how do I feel, like, not Bible language that I've quoted there, but although I think the New Testament would use the same kind of language, how do I feel about the fact that I've got an obligation to do what I can to love and serve and encourage those who are around me. Is that how I think about it normally? Or do I think of it as a choice? Okay, so that's what you're going to do now on your tables. Thinking through Christian life and then church life, and then we'll come back and think some more about the implications in just a second. Okay, I'm going to draw us back together there, if I may. Why am I... Um, why are we having a week thinking about salvation when we think about it all of the time? And it's that salvation is a much, much bigger thing than I think we sometimes realize. Um, I heard of one person who said, well, I, I wasn't sure I'd come to these because I think I know it all already. And I think what I want us to see in tonight, just in any measure, is that we don't. And there is so many riches that we miss out on because if we ever have a, yeah, I've kind of got that. I don't have much more to learn about that. I don't have much more to think about that. I don't think it's any wonder that maybe we don't always overflow with thankfulness and joy about the salvation that we have in Christ. If we don't deliberately come back and think about it a lot and think, you know what, I want to go a bit deeper into that. So my hope is that tonight would just make you think, wow, there's so much going on here. I really want to listen to some stuff or watch some stuff or read some stuff that might help me to understand and appreciate this better. We've got a lifetime in front of us. For different ones of us, that'll be a different length of time. But there is enough... I'm just stating the obvious. Kirsty, I wasn't looking at you. Um, but, just, <laughs> but there is more than enough here for a lifetime of thinking and praying and meditation for all of us, however young we are. So that's how salvation is accomplished. Jesus is salvation, and then we're united to him in the most incredible 
and eternal way as a gift of God's grace. And then, through that union, a whole bunch of blessings start to flow into our life. And this is on page four. Again, it's the sovereign work of God, the Holy Spirit, to pour these blessings into our life, and he does it. Um, So, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, you won't be surprised to know, in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What are those blessings? Theologians have often lumped them together in this thing called Ordo Salutis, which is just the order of salvation, the blessings that God gives to us and the logical order that they come in. And they're often listed as these uh, nine, I think it is, that I put there on the sheet. There's a one-sentence summary of each of them beneath and a verse that you can look at. And in the old handout, there was a bit more about each of them. But because we're being streamlined, we're just going to zoom in on three of them, five minutes each, and then you've got one question to think about each of them afterwards. So we're skipping over the first few. We're going to get to justification And we're over the hand at, again, page five, like we are motoring through it. Now, justification is a word that we'll hear a lot, or we'll hear the other word, righteousness, and those two words are the same word in the Greek, the kaiosuna, okay? So righteousness and justification are just the same thing. And there has been huge amounts of debate, even among people who claim that they are evangelical Christians and believe the Bible, uh, on this topic over the last 25 years or so, especially 30 years, 40 years maybe. Um, So much so that sometimes I think people are now slightly afraid of talking about justification. You think, well, I could never possibly understand what it's on about because there's so much. So I just went back to the Bible. I don't think it's all that difficult. That's the lovely thing about it. And again, I'm hoping that five minutes thinking about what it means will just begin to whet our appetite to want to go deeper into it and to give us a moment where we stop and say, wow, thank you, Lord, that you have justified me. It's one of the blessings that God gives us in Christ. What is it? It's a legal and relational thing. There's the Westminster Shorter Catechism's definition of it, an act of God's free grace. He pardons all of our sins. He accepts us as righteous in his sight because of the righteousness of Jesus imputed to us. We'll talk about that in a second and receive by faith alone. Uh, More popular Christian writer Tim Challies, shorter definition, thought we might like that. Instantaneous legal act of God. You'll see that happens once and for all at the moment you become a Christian, not a process. Uh, An instantaneous act, uh, act of God by the Spirit, in which he declares that our sins are forgiven and Christ's righteousness is ours. Another definition there. It's what the Bible's talking about when Paul says in Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus. Three elements to it that I want to draw out. There might be more we could talk about. First, the complete forgiveness of all of our sins. So look at those verses from Romans 4. David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness or justification apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. What I just want us to notice is that he's saying David is talking about justification or righteousness And the thing that he says is, blessed are those whose sins are forgiven. Therefore, a part of what justification is, 
is that our sins are forgiven. It's not that complex. You don't need to do a PhD to understand it. It's a wonderful thing. You're blessed if your lawless deeds are forgiven and your sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So part of justification, the Lord forgives your sins. And Jesus paid fully for every single one of your sins. That's a line from Heidelberg Catechism. I was writing a sermon for Sunday evening in the end of July earlier today. Christ paid fully for every one of my sins. He didn't pay partially for some of them. He paid fully for all of them. The sins that keep you awake at night and the sins that you didn't even realize that you'd committed or have never acknowledged as wrong. The big sins, the little ones, the past ones, the future ones. He paid fully for all of my sins through his precious blood shed on the cross. It's a part of justification and it is wonderful as you can go to sleep at night and know that every single one of your sins has been forgiven. If he paid fully for all of them, there's nothing left for you to pay. That's a thank you, Lord, moment. Second, the complete removal of the consequences of our sin forever. So again, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, if I ever have to visit you in hospital, um, I will quote this verse to you, just to warn you in advance. And the reason that I will do that, and if, when you visit me, when I'm in, whenever I'm there, please quote this verse to me. Because I think every person that I've ever spent time with who has been going through some sort of major trauma or who has been near the end of their Christian life, uh, i.e. the end of their life, irrespective of how mature a believer they are, I think without exception, every single one of them has, has doubted this truth at that moment. You get near to the end, you think, I know that I'm going to meet my maker. Can it possibly be true? And the reason I will quote you this verse is because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the, the second verse shows that this is part of what is meant by justification. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And you see what he says next? Who is to condemn? So again, all sorts of chat. I came across this verse just a couple of years ago. So much kind of stuff going on about what justification is. And here the New Testament is putting justification and condemnation as opposites of one another. Right? He, he justifies who can condemn. They're opposite to each other. So condemnation taken away, the consequences of sin taken away, removed from you forever. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and there never will be. And it is because you've been justified by God. This instant legal act, relational act, in which all of the sin, all of the punishment and condemnation that sin deserves is removed, and in its place, third, the instantaneous gift or imputation of Christ's righteousness. Instantaneous, important word, Imputation, important word, although less important to remember. The, the, uh, when, at the time of the Reformation, 
And the point that they wanted to make was that the righteousness of Jesus is given to the believer at the moment that they put their trust in him in one almighty dollop, all at the same time. Not one drip by one drip by one drip as you live a righteous life by grace, but that all of it comes in one big dump at the moment that you put your trust in Jesus. That's the truth of imputation, okay? Uh, that there is this instantaneous gift. And Paul says, I can everything rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not with a righteousness of my own that comes from the Lord, because that's impossible. You can't, you're not righteous. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, the justification from God, that depends on faith. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, Jesus, so that in him, in him, we might become the righteousness of God, that we are justified, made righteous, perfect, morally pure and spotless, legally declared to be in right status and relationship with God the moment we put our trust in Christ. So what does God see when he looks at you now? Because you are in Christ, he sees Christ. He sees all of the perfection of Christ. He sees you as perfect because you are in Christ. Let me press into that a second. He sees your thought life as perfect because you are in Christ. He sees your prayer life as perfect because you are in Christ. He sees your service as perfect because you are in Christ. He sees your love for his people as perfect because you are in Christ. All of his righteousness dolloped on you in one massive lump the moment you put your trust in him. God sees you as perfect. Not because you're great, but because of the gift of Christ. God's sovereign work in giving this to you. It should be a, that's a wonderful thing moment. Over the page, sanctification. Was that more than five minutes? That may have been six. But we're speeding up. Uh, we've got time. Uh, it's helpful to note, sanctification, there is a difference between the way that Christians normally use the word and the way that the Bible normally uses the word. When Christians use the word, they're normally talking about the gradual process of becoming more like Jesus. When the Bible uses the word, it's talking about a gift that God gives you in Christ at the moment you become a Christian. And there is some uh, bits of it here. I've put both bits on the sheet. So God is holy, and at conversion, he makes us holy. That's the wonderful truth of it. So, definitive sanctification, God's initial work to cleanse us and consecrate us to his service. The idea behind holiness is to be separate from sin and to be set apart for God's service. It's a consecration to the service of God. And at the very moment that you put your trust in Jesus, you are united to him, God set you apart from sin and consecrated you to his own service. So, you were washed, you were sanctified, says Paul. He describes the church of God that is in Corinth as those who were sanctified. 
Same word group as holy, same word group as saints. You are a saint. That's why the New Testament calls uh, believers saints. It happened definitively and in one go at the moment that you became a Christian. Progressive sanctification is God's ongoing work to make us more like Jesus. And this is often what theologians or Christians are talking about. I put the Westminster Shorter Catechism question there. What is it? The work of God's grace, whereby we're renewed in the whole man after the image of God. In other words, we're made more and more like Jesus and enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. And there are one or two places where the New Testament uses the sanctify word in this way. I put one on the sheet there. 1 Thessalonians 5. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. It's a prayer for something that he's going to do, as Paul's praying for the Thessalonians, not the thing that he's already done. Most of the time, the New Testament's talking about the thing he's already done here, and in one or two other places, he's talking about what God is going to do. It's a prayer because it's God's work. It's God's sovereign work. If you saw in the definitions back on the previous page, you'll find the word sovereign in all of them, because this is God's work in us, not our work. Uh, but I love the fact that in 1 Thessalonians 5, the very next verse is, so he prays that God will sanctify them completely, and then he says, he who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. That doesn't mean that we don't have a role to pay, to play, I should say. We, we don't just sort of sit back and wait to be made more like Jesus. There is a process that involves traditionally as theologians have understood it um, mortification and vivification or really just putting to death and putting on is another way of thinking of it putting to death whatever is earthly in you I want us to notice that that is a violent phrase put to death it is decisive it is comprehensive it's not dabble with sin it's not flirt with sin it's not do it until you feel really guilty about it. It is put it to death and then put on the new self. Again, it's active and it's intentional. How is God going to do that work in you? Sure, you've got to put some effort in, but how's God going to do that work? The means of grace, the means of sanctification that God has provided to help believers grow uh, in likeness to Christ. The central means of grace are the word, the sacraments and prayer. I think we often overlook this. We, we, we know that we go to church. We know that we read the Bible. We know that we're meant to say our prayers. But I think we forget sometimes that the reason that we're doing those things is because we're wanting God to be at work in us. We're not just doing them because they're duties or they're good things to do, like eating your muesli or whatever it happens to be, or eating five bits of fruit a day. It's just something you've got to do if you're a good person. We're doing it because we want God to be at work in our life. And we want to be made more like Jesus. We want the power that comes to put sin to death because it's really hard. And we want the power to put on the new self. And God works in us as we trust in him to do so through the word and prayer and as we receive the Lord's Supper together. So it's worth just logging. What am I trusting in for God to work in my life to make me more like Jesus? You don't trust in the fact that you've got a mentor or someone's doing a one-to-one -one with you. You don't trust in the number of books that you can read or the camp that you help out on. You don't trust in the, the rules that you put in place for your life to try and help you to be more godly. You don't trust in your friends. You don't trust in marriage. God is the one who's going to do this work in you. 
And so you trust in him and ask him to do it. So we approach all of those things, the word, the prayer, the sacraments, dependent upon him and asking for the fruit of those things in our lives. One final thing over the page, glorification. This is the bit at the end. Uh, Again, it's one that we don't think about enough. We're so busy dealing with the present that we don't often look to the future. But if we don't, I think it saps our confidence for the Christian life in the present. So there's a definition. The sovereign and gracious work of God. Finally, to remove all trace of sin from the Christian. To give them a resurrection body. And to allow them to share in Christ's glory forever. Stage one, when you die, like I said, your soul goes to be uh, in paradise. Uh, Jesus said to the thief on the cross, truly, today you will be with me in paradise. So it's not that you, your soul goes to sleep, that you're, you die and the first waking thought that you have is being with Jesus in his new creation. It's that the moment that you die, your, soul, your body gets laid in the grave, but your soul goes straight to be with Jesus there and then. So when we're at a funeral and we say they are safe with Jesus, they're enjoying his presence, it's 100% true. It's not they've got to wait however long until he comes again before they're with Jesus. They're with him now in paradise. It's the most wonderful, wonderful thing, the best uh, life that they've ever had, they're having now with him in paradise. Um, So they do pass immediately into glory. And then when Christ returns, it will be even better. Three elements of what will happen at the general resurrection, where we'll receive resurrection bodies. He'll transform our lowly body, says Philippians, to be like his glorious body. And that's something that many of us are looking forward to, especially those of us that have a few aches and pains around the place and maybe can't bend over as quickly as we, or get up as quickly as we used to be able to, that kind of thing. Maybe those of us that are troubled with our minds, it is a wonderful thing to look forward to, that uh, we will receive new bodies. We shall be like him, all sin removed forever. Um, Thomas Goodwin, I shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye. All of my lusts and corruptions I shall be rid of. Those croaking toads will fall off in a moment. In a moment, the croaking toads of sin gone. A friend of mine then in a wheelchair and I was in a Bible study with him once and I'd asked the question about what are we looking forward most to uh, most about heaven for and he hadn't spoken so I said to him how about you what are you looking forward to most just thinking you've got to get everyone talking in a Bible study and then I thought what an idiot because obviously the thing that he'll be looking forward to most is being able to walk again because he hadn't been able to do it since he had an accident when he was 20 or whatever And he said straight away, no more sin. No more sin. Isn't that a wonderful thing? It's going to happen. And we'll share in Christ's glory and happiness forever. It's such an incredible thing. Because we are united to him, we will share in his eternal glory and victory and happiness and blessing. The Christian life is sometimes great, often hard but it is not all that Christ has for us. We will be glorified with him. And that's Psalm 16 verse. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what God has for us.
And so over the page, a question about each of those. Pick one that excited you, that you want to say thank you to God about. Do the other two at home. Remind yourself of the truth of it. And then have a think about that question for five minutes around your tables. And then Scott will come and give us some prayer points.